Well, before I lead us in prayer, just a reminder about the National Day of Prayer this Thursday. I'm sure you saw as you came in on the table there some schedules. If you'd like to pick one of those up, you can, you're welcome to do so after the service if you haven't done so already. If you're able to attend uh, the courthouse gathering on Thursday to pray, that would be fantastic. Um, it starts at 11.50. At 11.30, there's a called a circle of good news where the Bible is read from cover to cover by hundreds of people. Um, over the course of about a 20-minute span, and then at 11.50, the, uh, the, the gathering will take place and the service will start, and there will be times of prayer for various aspects of our church and culture and things like that. So if you can be there, that would be great. It runs for about an hour, 11.50 to 12.50. If you can't join but have a lunch break and are just for some reason not able to get there, you can watch it online. They're going to live stream it on the Owensboro National Day of Prayer Facebook page, so you can check that out there. So uh, plug out of the way. Let's, uh, let's pray together, and then we'll dive into the text. Father, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture, which in some ways lands us a bit cryptically because it has to do with feasts and observations and rituals that are foreign to us, but were nonetheless given to your people at a period in history for their benefit and points forward to something greater that we are called to remember now. So would you draw near to us in this time together, speak to us from your word, Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We just sang, if you were paying attention, here is love, vast as the ocean. I thought, as we were singing, who is love cannot remember who, is, who will cease to sing his praise. The answer is, we can. We can. This is why God tells his people over and over and over again, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, to remember him, to remember our rescue. It's an important practice for us as God's people then. It was an important practice for them then. It's an important practice for us now. The reason being, in case you haven't noticed this about yourself yet, but I've certainly noticed it about me, we are forgetful people. We can forget the greatest things in the entire world. The scripture urges us in Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 14 to remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord. The fact that we have to be commanded to do that <laughs> says something about our own forgetfulness and our need for God's grace. Ecclesiastes 12.1, the writer tells us, Solomon says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Psalm 105 verse 5, remember the wonderful works he has done. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 8 in the New Testament we read, remember Jesus Christ. Paul's writing there to Timothy, uh, an up-and-coming aspiring pastor, and has to tell a would-be pastor to remember Jesus Christ. And I've been a pastor long enough to know that that's a command I need to know and hear and heed every day. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, Remind them of these things, Paul says, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Remind them of these things. Romans chapter 15, verse 15 but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Paul writing to churches, reminding them of things they already know. Philippians chapter 3 verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. He wrote the same things to them many times. Jude chapter 5, Now I want to remind you, although you once knew it, 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 12 and 15, through 15, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Verse 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you'll be able, be able at any time to recall these things. One more, 
2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up by way of reminder. We need to be reminded. We need to be called to remember. And in the passage before us, God wanted his people to remember the exodus from Egypt. If you think about one event God's people would never forget, would it not be the exodus? Think about what's going on, what we've been looking at the the better part of this year. We've considered this great event of redemption that God rescued his people from captivity and slavery and oppression and rescued them through mighty plagues that he sent upon Pharaoh in Egypt and then brought them out, according to the text, by his own strong arm, his own mighty arm doing this and working salvation for his people. And then he has to give them a multi-sensory ritual to remember it. To remember it because we are forgetful. This morning, I want to talk about six reasons for remembering. Six reasons that God gave this multi-sensory ritual known as Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread as an opportunity, a yearly annual opportunity for them to remember God's work in rescuing them from slavery. Here's the first reason to remember. We remember to rehearse God's grace. We remember to rehearse God's grace. The Passover was not only an event. We considered that last week. It's this great event by which God called upon his people to slaughter a lamb, sprinkle the doorposts, the blood on the doorposts of the house so that the angel of death would pass over them because a substitute had died in their place, rescuing them from the judgment of God. It wasn't only an event, though. It was also a memorial. It was a feast to remember, an annual reminder of God's saving grace in which Israel's deliverance from Egypt was commemorated and celebrated symbolically with blood and bread. We'll get back to that. But for right now, think about this. They are being given a reason to remember, and that reason is to rehearse God's grace. Look at chapter 13, verse 3, where we get the essence of what they are called upon to do this for. Chapter 13, verse 3, then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. While this is certainly a unique period in the life of God's people. Nevertheless, I don't know if you thought about this, we still celebrate Passover today as Christians. Not in the exact form it takes here, but we too remember the rescue accomplished by the death of the Passover lamb. We do so, says Jesus, every time we take the bread and the blood. Every time we observe the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, brothers and sisters, is the fulfillment of the Passover meal. Just as the redemption of Jesus, the Passover lamb, is the fulfillment of the Exodus, so the Lord's Supper is the fulfillment of the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Don't take my word for it. Take Jesus' word for it. Mark chapter 14, where Jesus, where Mark records for us, an account of where Jesus is instituting the very memorial meal we are called to participate in. 
and he does it during the Passover. Mark chapter 14, verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you go, have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there, prepare it for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now, what are you expecting here? You're expecting a Jewish feast. You're expecting, I mean, it's during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is the Passover. Where, where's the lamb that's to be killed? Where's the meal that's to be eaten? Where's the blood that's to be poured out? Where, where is this? We're going to celebrate this annual Jewish festival. And then Jesus meets them up in that upper room and turns it around. Turns it on its head. Fulfills it. Verse 22 of Mark 14. As they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. He took the unleavened bread that was the symbol of God's rescue of his people, salvation by substitution in the Passover, and said, this is me. And he took a cup, verse 23, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. They drank all of it, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink it again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Think about this. Jesus' reference to his death, namely his body and his blood, is no doubt a reference to the Passover lamb. Whereas the old Passover focused on the body and blood of a lamb slain as a sacrifice for the redemption of Israel, the Lord's Supper focused on the body and blood of Christ who gave himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. It seems strange at first that Mark should mention only bread and wine and not the lamb that was doubtless on the menu. The lamb was central to the feast. Why did he not introduce the lamb? Because, brothers and sisters, the lamb's at the table. The lamb is at the table with them. He's sitting there saying, I'm the Passover lamb. So we too remember to rehearse God's grace. Every time we gather for the Lord's Supper, we are doing exactly what God called his people to do in Exodus 12 and 13 which is to remember and rehearse God's grace in their rescue from slavery. We don't celebrate it the way they did. They celebrated a physical release from oppression and slavery, being brought into fellowship with God, headed to the promised land. But we experience the same thing spiritually. We experience through the death of our Passover lamb, the passing over of our sins, the full forgiveness of our sins, the assuaging of the wrath of God so that we are brought into fellowship with God, out of slavery to sin, into fellowship with God and his people, headed to heaven and eating the meal all along the way to help us remember and rehearse God's grace until we get there. Number two, a second reason for remembering 
is to, we remember to identify God's people. We remember not only to rehearse God's grace, but we remember to identify God's people. In other words, this meal tells us who the people of God are. This meal defines for us who God's people are. Who are God's people? The people that take the meal. Who can take the meal? God's people. How do we know who God's people are? Well, let's see. Look at Exodus chapter 12, beginning at verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. But every slave that's bought for money may eat of it after you've circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house. You shall not break break of its bones. Verse 48, if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Look at the end of verse 48. No uncircumcised person shall eat of it. So what's, what's, what's talking about here? Well, if you remember last week when we read the passage about them getting out of Egypt and they were rescued after the Passover, Moses makes clear in writing it that there was a mixed multitude that went up with them. That is, there were likely Egyptians in the midst who believed what was happening and escaped the wrath of God as well. And there was a mixed multitude of people from various ethnicities. There were foreigners among them. There were strangers among them. There were non-ethnic Hebrews among them who had not yet been circumcised according to the covenant with Abraham, which set you apart as one of God's people. And what does Moses command that they be done if they would celebrate, take part in this meal? Well, it's not based on their ethnic status. It's not based on how good they are. It's not based on whether or not they really sincerely want to follow the Lord. It doesn't have anything to do with that. They have to have the mark of the covenant on them. They've got to be circumcised. If you're a male, it says very clearly, no foreigner is going to eat of it, no stranger, only they are allowed to eat of it if they take the sign of the covenant on themselves. Because the sign of the covenant, circumcision, was a sign that showed who God's people were. It was a sign that you belonged to the covenant community of faith and it qualified you to participate in the Passover meal. Everyone was welcome to the table provided they were circumcised. And brothers and sisters, it's the same in the Lord's Supper. This is why we don't give the Lord's Supper to everyone. And not everyone should take the Lord's Supper. Because if the Lord's Supper is a fulfillment of Passover, and Passover required that God's people be circumcised, then the Lord's Supper, too, requires that God's people be identified in order for them to take it. Now, I don't have time to do this. You can go listen to this back in previous sermons. But in previous sermons, we talked about what the New Testament form of circumcision is. Remember, it's no longer physical. It's not a physical sign anymore. It's a spiritual sign. The spiritual sign is the circumcision of the heart. It's regeneration. It's being born again. It's being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's being one who has turned to Jesus Christ and is trusting him alone for salvation. Philippians 3.3 makes it clear. We are the circumcision who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's the circumcision. The circumcision are the people who have tur- are turning and have turned from their sin to follow Christ. They have, they've been regenerated. They've been baptized as an as a, as a evidence, as a, as a showing forth of their regeneration. And they've joined themselves to the church of God. 
Remember in Acts chapter 2, we see this, right? In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches a sermon, a gospel sermon through Psalm chapter 16 and talks about the resurrection of Christ and he talks about the death of Christ and people respond. They're cut to the heart, Luke says, and they say, what shall we do to be saved? And he tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they repent. They're transformed. That cutting to the heart is the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart by which they turn from their sin, they flee to Christ, they forsake their ways, and they are baptized upon that profession, and then they are added to the church, Luke says. And then, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. That's the Lord's Supper. Now, who got to do that? Everybody in Jerusalem? No. The people who recognized Jesus' death for what it was, repented of sin, closed with Christ, following him, seeking to turn from their wicked ways, being baptized, and being joined to the membership of a church. That's who gets to take the Lord's Supper and no one else because that's how God's people are identified. If there's a rogue Christian out here or in the community just saying they're a Christian, but they give no evidence of being a Christian, they have not darkened the doors of a church in decades, they think that they've got this me and Jesus kind of thing, how do we know they're one of God's people? Well, they say they are, but what is the evidence according to the Bible that they are? According to Acts 2, it's regeneration, it's, spirit, it's the Holy Spirit, it's turning from sin, it's being baptized, it's being added to the membership of a church, they're known by people, and they're devoting themselves. You see how critical it is. This meal, friends, is not just a ritual by which we personally remember God's grace, it's a ritual by which we identify who the people of God are. Do you want to know who the people of God are? They're the ones that take the Lord's Supper. Those are the people of God. Not that the Lord's Supper somehow makes them the people of God. The Passover meal didn't make these people God's people. Circumcision made these people God's people. And what makes us God's people is circumcision of the heart, regeneration. We've been changed. We've been made new. According to 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are new creations in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. We are different people. For sure, we're sinners, but we are not what we once were. We've been changed by the gospel. And so we not only remember to rehearse God's grace, we remember to identify who God's people are. In fact, that's what constitutes a church. What is a church? What brings a church together? The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper observed in the midst of a people, along with the preach, right preaching of the gospel and the right administration of the Lord's Supper, is what constitutes the church. And Discipline comes along there as well. But those are the elements. That's how you know who the church is. Enough said about that for now. Point number three. We not only remember to rehearse God's grace, we not only remember to identify God's people, but we remember to affirm God's primacy. We remember to affirm God's primacy. Look at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. He just rewrote their calendar. He just rewrote the calendar. Look also at chapter 13, verse 10. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. God changed the calendar on the Israelites so that they could celebrate the Passover. 
he told Moses and Aaron that there would be a new calendar and it would be a sign of a new beginning. This tells us something of the importance of the event. God established their calendar, brothers and sisters, on the basis of theology. God came first in their lives and was central to all that they did. He's saying, you know what's most fundamental about your lives from here on out? Me. You know what is the greatest priority to you from here on out? Me. You know what factors in first in all of your priorities? Me. I wonder what goes first on your calendar? When you sit down as a family or as an individual to plan your schedule, how do the priorities of God factor into that? Do you establish your calendar on the basis of theology? If so, the Lord's Supper's on there. If so, praying with God's people is on there. If so, members' meetings are on there. If so, gathered worship is on there. If so, hospitality and care for others is on there. And yes, vacations are on there too. But you do all you can to work around the other priorities as you make them happen. Not only do we see it in the resetting of the calendar, the affirmation of God's primacy, but we also see it in the consecration of the firstborn. Look at chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. Verses 11 through 13. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or you shall not redeem it, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of Man among your sons you shall redeem. So what's the idea here? The idea is not that they gave up their kids for adoption to God. Like, okay, I don't have any responsibility for this firstborn. They belong to the Lord. God's going to raise them. No, that's not the point. The point is, is that it's symbolizing the priority that God has in their families. He's saying, and this was a, there was a price associated with this. There was a financial burden that was associated with this consecration of the firstborn. They had to pay or give an animal or something that was quite costly as a sign that their whole life belonged to God. And so what they're doing here with the consecration of the firstborn son is not only pointing back to the reality of the Exodus, where their firstborn sons were saved... Remember, Pharaoh tried to kill the firstborn sons, but God killed his through the judgment on them through the Passover. Their firstborn sons were spared because the blood of the, blood of the lamb was on the doorpost. So this is part of that too, but it's also a sign that God is primary in their lives. And notice, if they, for some reason, can't do that, you, you notice verse 13 of chapter 3, every firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. So it includes animals and kids or animals and sons, and if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. What does that mean? You're not going to get any benefit out of this. If you don't redeem it, 
you're not allowed to get benefit from it. It's, 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 though it's dead to you, it is dead to you. So God is taking this very seriously. He's saying, you need to consecrate to me all the firstborn of your flocks and of your family. And the firstborn is representing the whole family. So by dedicating the firstborn to God, they're saying, Lord, our whole family belongs to you. We are yours. We are yours. We see an example of this when Mary and Joseph took Jesus to Jerusalem in Luke chapter 2. What are they doing in going to Jerusalem? They are consecrating their firstborn son according to God's requirements. What are they doing it with? Well, Luke quotes Exodus 13.1, the very text we're considering this morning and why they're doing that. But it says that they offered up a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Perhaps, and likely, because they were too poor to afford a lamb, or perhaps because they're holding one. So, regardless, they did what God's requirements were. They affirmed God's primacy. Friends, brothers and sisters, we must do the same. Our calendars, our priorities, our family belongs to him. We belong to him. He is first. He is primary. And the Lord has given us the Lord's Supper in part to help us remember that. The Lord's Supper is a monthly recalibration of what's most important. That's what it is. When we gather together, we are stiff-arming everything in our culture that says, you're more important. Your family's more important. Everything else is more important. Your work's more important. And we say, no. Football's not more important. Our work's not more important. Nothing's more important than God. My nap's not more important. God's most important. And we set our calendars to that because he deserves it. Did he rescue us from slavery? By grace alone? As the great theologian Keith Green said, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, J-Po, Jesus, Jesus rose from the dead. Why? What did he say? I'm forgetting the quote. So that you, and you can, can you get out of bed? Yeah, that's what it is. Thank you. Jesus rose from the dead. Can you get out of bed? I blew it. Supposed to be, I was going to be a good one. No, just, no but that's, that's, that's true. I mean, that he's, he's exhorting us. Keith Green was exhorting us in that song to say, look, look at what all that Christ did. Surely we can sacrifice for him. So number four, we're halfway done. We remember to prioritize God's worship. We remember to prioritize God's worship. Look at chapter 12, verse 6. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel, I want you to pay attention to that phrase, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Verse 14 of chapter 12. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Verse 16, on the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but, not, but what everyone needs to eat that alone may be prepared for you, and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month. This is a whole week-long festival. This is a big party. This is a feast that marked 
the start of their year in many ways as a kickoff, an inaugural event celebrating their deliverance from Egypt. But I want you to notice that there is a corporate aspect to this. They are gathering together as the congregation of Israel to observe this. Surely throughout other weeks and months, they're scattered all over the place, but here they are to gather together and to remember together what God has done. They are to engage in what the text calls holy assembly. The purpose of these days is to worship and honor the Lord together corporately. It is in order to hold a holy assembly. Listen, brothers and sisters, God still calls for holy assembly is what we're doing right here on the Lord's Day. We are gathering together as the New Testament church patterned on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are engaging in holy assembly. God seeks special attention from his people in ways that are not within the routine of our usual labors. Worship is intended to be a group enterprise conducted apart from routine. This is what we're doing now. This is what we do every Sunday as we gather together. We gather in holy assembly to worship our Lord because he cannot be honored sufficiently or uniquely when we are separated from each other in the context of work each day. God rightly seeks special attention from his people and Sunday is about giving him the special attention that he alone deserves and we do it together. We prioritize God's worship. That's one of the reasons God gave his people this feast was that they would be called together, unite together in holy assembly to remember God. And we do the exact same thing when we too gather together in holy assembly to remember what our God has done. Number five, we remember to transfer the gospel. We remember to transfer the gospel. So one of the purposes for our remembering is to give the gospel away to succeeding gen- or upcoming generations. Look at chapter 12, verse 24. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, It's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Look at chapter 13, verses 8 and 9. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes and the law of the Lord, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. And then finally, verses 14 to 16. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your head or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Friends, these rituals were not empty. 
They were designed to teach children about God. Of all that God had done for his people so that future generations of Israelites would know what God had done in delivering them from his judgment and from Egypt. Do we not have a clear example here of our role as parents and what is to be fundamental in that role? What is to be primary in that role? Our primary, while we do lots of things for our kids, for sure, we should. We, you know, we take care of them in all sorts of ways. But brothers and sisters, this is the, this is the main thing. It's to communicate to them about the saving grace of God in Christ Jesus. If we do everything else right but get this wrong, we've got it all wrong. If you give your kids everything but the gospel, we failed. We failed. And I would even say, push so far as to say, if we give, if we give the gospel in lesser proportion to other things, we failed. It's not an all or nothing thing. It's an issue of priority. Parents, our kids must know that the gospel is most important to us above everything. Do they know that? Do they know that what God has done in Christ is the most important thing in my life? If they know, if they don't know, how could they know? And if they do know, how do they know? They know it from watching you. They know it by watching you do what you do. And they will follow what you do. This is the way God has set it up. It's the responsibility of parents to finally, finally and primarily speak to their kids about spiritual things. Now, the church has a role in that, but it's a vastly supportive role, and it's hard to beat the home. You can't supplement non-parental involvement for parental involvement. No amount of non-parental involvement is going to move the needle if the parents aren't loving and modeling the gospel and caring. Now, God in his grace, praise God, he works in ways that are contrary to even his revealed will. He will work in his own providence and save kids out of terrible situations. And what, I'm, not, I'm not laying down a rule here, but there is a principle that we are called to follow. We are, fo- we are called to follow God's commands, not try to find out what those exceptions to his commands are and trust in those things. We're called to Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Parents, raise your fathers, raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And I love, I love the way this vision is painted. It's a conversation between mom and dad and their kids. It's a conversation, which is so much of parenting, isn't it? Parenting's just one long conversation. That's really all it is. And this is a conversation, and it assumes that kids are going to ask questions. Say, why, Daddy? Why, Mommy, do we do that? What's that all about? What's this? What's that? What's this? What's that? When they ask you about the Lord's Supper or questions regarding salvation, are you ready to answer? They were ready to answer, weren't they? It's like they had it on tap. It's like memory verse. Boom. There was a Lord's Passover when he, in which he delivered us out of the hand of the Egyptians. And like they just had it. It was right there. The gospel was right there. Brothers and sisters, it's got to be right there. We can't be fumbling the gospel. Uh, but, um, uh, well, you know, um, Bible, random Bible verse here. No, the gospel. Here's what God has done for us in Christ. He sent his son into the world to die for our sins. And he was raised from the dead on the third day so that all who repent and believe will be forgiven and reconciled to him forever. 
This is a reason to celebrate. Let's do this. This is a great time to share the gospel with your child. Every Sunday is a great time to share the gospel with your children. What did we do in there? What did we do? Why did we sing? Why did we pray? Why did he preach that and what did he say? It's a, it's a, it's a repeated opportunity to bring it home to them. We were slaves. God rescued us. We deserve the death angel, but God passed over us. And then be sure, especially around the Lord's table, when those little ones are gathered with us, that we're telling them what's going on and that we're telling them this isn't the end. We're looking forward to a bigger meal with a much bigger crowd, the marriage supper of the Lamb in the future where one day all of God's people will sit down at a banquet table with our king. And son or daughter, we want you there. We want you there. So we remember to transfer the gospel. It's one of the most powerful tools we have. Gathered corporate worship, assembling around the priorities of God, observing God's feast together. This is the way the gospel gets transferred. It's not the only way, but it is the primary way that God put for his people to help them in that pursuit. Sixthly and finally, we remember to imitate God's holiness. We remember to imitate God's holiness. Look at chapter 12, verse 15. Chapter 12, verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Verse 19 and 20. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leaven, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. And one more text, chapter 13, verses 6 and 7. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day you shall be a feast of the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your country. Brothers and sisters, Passover is for sure about getting saved. We saw that last week. It reminds us that we have been delivered from death by a perfect substitute whose blood was shed as a sacrifice for our sins. The Feast of Unleavened Bread reminds us what God wants us to do once we've been saved. And that is to live a sanctified life. A life set apart to him. A life that fights against sin. When they were settled in the land, they were called to purge their houses of unleavened bread before the feast. Really, leaven, not unleavened bread. But all leaven was to be put out of their house. And leaven is the biblical symbol for sin. It's the biblical symbol of spiritual purification. Unleavened bread is made pure, or sorry, unleavened bread is made of pure wheat that's untouched by yeast. Yeast is an appropriate symbol for sin because of the way it grows and spreads. As yeast ferments and grows, it works its way all through the dough. Sin works the same way. It's always trying to extend its corrupting influence through a person's entire life. And part of what it means to lead a holy life is to sweep away the sin before it has a chance to grow. I won't turn us there, but this is exactly the way Paul uses this idea in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8. He calls upon the church 
to purge themselves of leaven. Namely, sin that's in their midst. Get rid of it. Fight against it. And this is one of the things that we do when we remember the Lord's Supper. When we gather together for worship, when we assemble together, when we take the Lord's Supper together, we are called to put our sin in check. Right? Isn't that what it means to observe the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner? It doesn't mean we come to the table sinless, but it comes, means we come to the table confessing our sin. We confess our sin, we own our sin, we recognize our sin, we don't strive to live in our sin, we try to forsake our sin, we try to get, a, get the leaven out of the lump. Because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And we can't play with sin. We don't mess with sin. If you mess with sin, if you play with sin, sin will grow and spread. It always does. It always has. It always will. We have to repent of it, recognize it, seek to forsake it, and pray for the help of the Holy Spirit in fighting against it. Let me ask you this. Are you striving by God's grace to be unleavened? Growing? Or are you occasionally sneaking in a few morsels of that old lump of bread. I can handle it. I can just nibble on this every once in a while. I, I mean, I still have this. I have my life. It's untouched by that, but just, just, just once in a while. No, 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 no. It's going to work its way into the whole batch. It's going to work its way into the whole lump. It's going to grow and spread until it corrupts everything. Sweep it out. Sweep it out. Don't hang on to that old lump of dough. So this teaches us something in conclusion then about the nature of salvation, doesn't it? Both feasts, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it teaches us that God saved us to sanctify us, right? God saves us from our sins in its punishment so he can save us from our sins in its power and influence. That's why salvation works that way. And I believe this is a beautiful, beautifully pictured at the end of verse 12, or chapter 12. Would you look there? We're going to conclude. It's not at the, sorry, not at the end of chapter 12, but in the middle of chapter 12 in verses 28, 27 and 28. Exodus 12, verses 27 and 28. You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, and he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. Listen to this. And the people bowed their heads, and worshiped. Verse 28, Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. There's salvation at work. That's salvation. That's when you know you've been saved. You bow your head and worship, and then you go and do it. You don't just bow your head and worship and then go live the same way. That's called hypocrisy. But you bow your head in worship, receiving gratefully God's free grace that has forgiven you and saved you and rescued you and delivered you from judgment and wrath. You're never going to pay for your sins ever. It's all been absorbed in Jesus Christ. He earned everything you needed to earn. He died for everything you failed to do. He is your all. You need nothing else but him. How does a person who lives, who believes that? They obey Jesus. They obey Jesus. They worship. They listen. They obey. That's the way salvation works. You got the cross. You got the gospel. You got forgiveness. You got salvation. You get cleansed. You're free. Now what? What's your response? 
Well, these feasts teach us what that response is. I submit, I agree, I cooperate, I give thanks, I rejoice. And then the people of Israel went and did so. They did just as they were told. If you want this Christ to be your Christ, if you want to be his people, this tells us how. We bow, we worship, we rejoice, and we obey. That's what it means to be God's people, which means we remember God's grace. We identify with God as his people through repentance and baptism and church membership. We remember by prioritizing God in all of our scheduling. We prioritize the worship of God in holy assembly. We prioritize our responsibility as parents to transfer the gospel to coming generations. And we strive by God's grace to imitate God's holiness. But let me conclude with this. Don't just hear these as a list of do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Why did I start where I started? Because all of our obedience flows from grace. It flows from the fact that we are rehearsing God's kindness to us. We're not doing this to get God to get it, treat us kindly. We're doing this because he has treated us kindly. We are doing this as an expression of our gratitude for his grace to us, as an expression of the fact that we belong to him and that we love him. And you know, when you've just had one of those weeks or one of those years or one of those decades and you look back and you say, man, I don't think I've remembered God's grace well. I don't think I've prioritized worship. I don't think I've transferred the gospel. I don't think I've imitated God's holiness as I ought to. I don't think I've identified with his people the way I need to. I don't think I've affirmed his supremacy and primacy. What do you do in that situation? You do this. Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's what you do. You rest on his remembrance of you when you fail to remember him. Because though you may forget, he'll never forget you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace that is demonstrated to us in this passage. Thank you for the reminder of what you have done for us in Christ. Thank you for the call that you place upon our lives to remember these things through worship and celebration of the Lord's Supper and of fighting our sin and seeking to transfer the gospel to upcoming generations. God, help us in all of these ways. We, apart from you, Lord Jesus, we readily acknowledge, according to John 15, as the vine and the branches, we can do nothing. We can do nothing apart from you. So we pray for your supernatural help and enablement to follow you in the path that you have set before us as we rise to worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.